But far worse was Abu Nidal, who committed acts of terrorism. His organization committed acts of terror in over 20 countries. He's believed to have been responsible for the deaths of several hundred people. I mean, not a lot in the scheme of things, but the attacks themselves had huge headlines at the time. Welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton and his name is James Jackson and this is the third part of our discussion on violence. In episode 41 we talked about assassination and in 42 the subject was hostage. Today Jamie and I are going to talk about terrorism. The terrorist. The root of the expression terrorism most likely derives from the time of the French Revolution and the period known as the Reign of Terror, 1793-94. This was 13 months of state-backed purge, assassination and execution. As the saying goes, well I say it anyway, you are probably more likely to be run over at Hyde Park Corner by a member of the royal family than to be the victim of a terrorist attack. The numbers relative to general population are tiny, but the results are often dramatic and widely publicised and instill enormous fear. Life is safer today than at any time in human history. We expect safety, we demand it from our governments and are therefore untempered when it comes to dealing with danger, actual or more likely perceived. Technology, international travel and revolutionary ideas fuel terrorism and enable the terrorist. And remember, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. So, Jamie, the terrorist, the sub-state actor employing violence to achieve his political ends, when did this start, or has it always played a part in human history? It's been going a hell of a long time, Tom. It's timeless. It's been going on as long as humans have breathed, as long as humans have hunted, as long as humans have settled, because there's always been politics, there's always been shenanigans, and there's always been uh, competition for resources and for leadership positions. So this goes back a long way. I mean, going back into history, you can look at 535 BC and the killing, the assassination of the Roman king, sixth Roman king, Servius Tullius, uh, he had a pretty bad end. He was stabbed in the street coming out of the Senate. He was then run over by his daughter, Tullia, in a, in a chariot. So keep it in the family. So as we mentioned... Be our, nice to your daughters. Be nice to your family and your daughters <laughs> in particular. And, and as we mentioned in our Assassinations podcast, assassination has been a key tool in the hands of the terrorist. It's easy to do before you even get on to mass acts of terrorism, poisoning water supplies, that sort of thing. You just had a dagger. I mean, it was an easy thing to do. So it's been going a long time. So the assassination you achieve, you, you get rid of the person, but at the same time you throw out a bit of fear and... Yes, terrorising populations or towns is, is something that has also been going on a long time. It's policy it's 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 what tyrants do if you go back to the 7th century bc to king asabanigal of syria he was threatening to 
dry out the wells of Tyre, uh, poisoning wells, blocking waterways, drying out wells. This was common policy among kings, tyrants, invaders who wanted to take over an area. So what the Russians are doing in Ukraine today, area denial, that has always been a policy. So terrorising populations has also been a policy. Yeah, and tying up the food stocks and, and setting fire to grain and stealing the grain. Yes, and often it's the terrorists who are representing a people who do that so that everyone's back's against the wall. We mentioned this in Crazy Cults podcast. You know, these people are in their own echo chamber, so they don't really listen to anything that's going on outside. Go back to AD 70, and you have the Sicarii, the, 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 the sort of extremist wing of the Jewish zealots. The Daggermen. The Daggermen, who were fighting Roman occupation and took out anyone that they believed were representatives of the, the Roman hegemony in the area. So in AD 58, you, you got the high priest Jonathan being killed by the Sicarii. This, again, is what they do. They, they take out people who they think are fellow travellers of, of those who, who they are opposing. Of course, the Holy Land being the sort of birthplace of humanity, at least one of them, has also been uh, the place where this sort of thing has gone on for a very long time. It's the crucible of political intrigue and rivalry from Mesopotamia onwards. And as soon as you get different tribes competing, whether it's the Israelites against the Canaanites uh, and different religious groups competing, you are going to get... The, the extremists on all sides using different techniques. And this travels onwards into the Middle Ages. So you have the assassin's cult, the Hashashin, and, and they were the, the sort of group of Ishmaeli uh, zealots, if you like, who not only killed for their own sake, but could be recruited as mercenaries. So Again, you can project forward to the 20th century and Abu Nidal. So you get the, you can see mercenary groups then as well. Yeah. And that was a 1,000 years ago. Exactly. So they were going around uh, killing both Muslims and crusader nobles. So anyone, in fact, the hospitalers recruited them, the, the Templars recruited them to do their dirty work. And they tended to attack with knives. It was usually a frontal attack. Was it for money or was it for something else? It was both for money and for their own religious aims. Uh, but being a mercenary group, they weren't fussy. Uh, if you went to recruit them, it was always said that the, their commander, the old man of the mountains, would clap his hands and several of them would just jump over a cliff to show their loyalty, to show how hardcore they were. And they had this reputation. It's extraordinary that their castle ranges went from Persia into what is modern-day Lebanon, uh, into the Levant. So they, was, they, were, they were spread around, and they had quite a following. Have you ever tried that with any of your friends who you've gone off, Jamie, clapping your hands and seeing what happens? <laughs> <laughs> They just throw a punch. <laughs> so so th this idea of terror, this idea of terrorism, of recruiting people to do your dirty work, to be your, your point men, to be your spear carriers, uh, to kill people at command, has a very long tradition. 
Okay, Jamie, so then we move forwards to the 17th, 18th, 19th century, that period, and we might as well start with one of our favourite subjects, the gunpowder plot. Well, why not? Because it's a constant theme through the history of terrorism, that not only do you have radicalisation, the idea of people stuck in their sects or their cults or their small political groups, often with sort of religious fervour, whether it's the gunpowder plotters or even Bader-Meinhof later on in the uh, 1960s and 1970s, there is this sort of cult, cultish dimension to terrorist activity. They, they, they listen to themselves, they listen to their own beliefs, and they believe in violence. And it gives them a feeling of legitimacy. Completely. And, and so uh, alongside that is really the development of technology. So you move on from the Sicarii and daggers or the assassins and daggers, and you get to the 17th century, and you start getting the arrival of things like gunpowder. I mean, gunpowder had been along, around a long time. It had arrived really in Europe in the 13th century from China, in, invented in the 9th century AD. And so that came across. You already had things like wildfire. So uh, naphtha, the use of incendiaries, the use of gunpowder was, was ready, uh, readily available. And then you got the gunpowder plot. And it was sophisticated. It was a very flawed plot, but people can listen to our podcasts on the gunpowder plot. But it, it, it involved 36 barrels of gunpowder, the idea of a spectacular, really the world's first potential terrorist spectacular. So you had that dimension, and you also had the idea of kidnapping the nine-year-old daughter of King James, Princess Elizabeth from Coombe Abbey and Warwickshire. So you, so you got two dimensions. You had assassination and kidnap, which, again, is a very strong theme throughout history. And, and in a way, you know, we've been brought up with the story of the gunpowder plot. It's hard to imagine, you know, with a few old-fashioned barrels of gunpowder, what damage it would have done. But it would have been the equivalent of 9-11, Really, in its in its day, would it? It would it would well, have leveled it, it, an entire it, it, city. But, but but more than the physical damage, it, it would have wiped out the entire ruling class of of England. So it would have had more, far more of an impact, and provoked a civil war. So in in political terms, it would have been massive. But you you see this technology coming through. You see the beginning, the arrival of wheel lock pistols that allowed assassination attempts, concealed weaponry, if you like uh, with with pistols you already had Dutch resistance in Holland against the Spanish in the 16th century the the use of hell burner ships there was one uh, there was a use of one uh, hell burner ship that killed 3,000 when it was used to blow up a pontoon bridge so so, so this is a ship which is basically filled full of explosives and sort of discarded, you mean, used to... Used to drift onto a target. Yeah. So... It's destroyed it, and destroys everything. Yes, so so the, the concept... And in fact, Guy Fawkes came from that. He, he came from the Spanish side, working for the Spanish side, but he was a gunpowder expert. And so he would have been very aware of the use of hellburner ships, of sabotage uh, and assassination by the, uh, by the Dutch resistance. And the Spanish, too, were also 
promoting assassination of Dutch figures, uh, such as uh, the Prince of Orange. So assassination, murder, all these sorts of things were, were going on, were part of the arsenal uh, of political intrigue. And you look at the assassination attempts that were mounted against Queen Elizabeth before that, against James I, obviously, and onwards. And you know, we put all this into our assassination podcast. But this became a, a key tool for, for, for terrorists. So then, really, what, what this comes down to is when you have the French Revolution in 1793... There's a crystallisation of the idea of state-sponsored terrorism. Yes, the terror, the, the idea of really terrorising people. And that travelled onwards, of course, into the 19th century with the Commune in Paris um, in 1870, 1871. So this idea of enforcing terror, mm. of burning houses of dragging people off, of summary execution, of denunciation. It's all part of th that arsenal. And, of course, police chiefs who will go and tie people up and fire grape shot at them, which is what was happening. Uh, and it was, it was extremely terror. brutal, but it still wasn't brutal enough uh, in the eyes of someone like Lenin. Well, later on, we'll, we'll come to that. But, but certainly, it, it, it was extremely important. And I think you have a quote there uh, by a French politician of the period. Yes, I do. Bertrand Barrère, he said, let's make terror the order of the day. And that's really what it's about. And, and in a way, it's, it's the sort of nascent state sponsorship of terror that you see in the 20th century, backed by countries such as Iran or the Soviet Union and now Russia. It's just part of the arsenal, part of what they do, a part of asymmetric warfare and destabilising the other side. So you've mentioned gunpowder and naphtha, um, and th this technology develops and you start getting TNT and nitro yes. in the 19th century. Yes, you do. And that, again, transformed things. I mean, if you look at the... Uh, people's will, the Narodniks who were trying to kill the Tsars and spark anarchy and revolution in Russia all the way through the sort of mid to late 19th century. They tried everything. I mean, they blew up the dining room of Alexander II. They blew up his train. Eventually, they blew his legs off in St. Petersburg and, and he was killed. But, but this development, you could see, again, backed by revolutionary zeal, and backed by this development of technology. What, the, the order of explosive power was sort of increased tenfold? I, increasing all the time. Mm. Just as when you get to the, later on to the late 20th century, you start getting the arrival of things like Semtex from Czechoslovakia, you get liquid explosives coming through from East Germany, which is why you're not allowed <laughs> liquids on aircraft today when you fly. So the technology is always developing and the authorities are always trying to uh, sniff out that technology and root out that technology. Uh, the, the, one of the assassins who blew up the dining room in the Winter Palace uh, in the 19th century, trying to kill Alexander II, the, the, the staff could actually smell the explosive, uh, but still nothing was done about it. Yeah, it, was, it was under his bed, wasn't it? It was, in a, in a crate under his bed, but nothing was done about it. So, but, but then you end up in the 20th century with odorless 
explosives. So it makes it even more difficult for particle analyzers and sniffers and things to, to, to track them down. But, but this is how technology changes. And any sort of technology change, anything that filters down from the military, from the battlefield, is going to aid the sub-state actor, the terrorist, whether it's a lone wolf or whether it's an... And it all really culminates in the First World War and the Russian Revolution. It does, partly because the First World War fragmented society, destroyed nations, undermined the political status quo. You got the overthrow of, of monarchy, you got the overthrow of the established order, and you had revolution taking off from 1917 in, in Russia. And because they were fighting insurgencies, white Russian forces, because they introduced the Red Terror to try and impose their revolutionary zeal on the Russian population that wasn't always behind it. Like the French Revolution and like the Commune in 1871 in Paris, you get the need for terror. And once that becomes state-sponsored, state-backed, then why not use it abroad as well? Why not send your agents abroad to assassinate people to take out those who might oppose you? Uh, influence events abroad, particularly if you're trying to spread international revolution. Yeah, and it's pretty cheap as well, Yes, relatively. Yes, and the, and the fragmentation you can see in the political order, you can also see in literature, you can see in music, all this dissonance, all these different tones. It, it, it very much symbolized the time. It very much represented what was going on in, in the sort of chaos, the chaotic political order. And, and, and in a way, we're still living with those consequences. We're still living with the, that pedigree of terrorism, with that, that, that mindset. So after the First World War, uh, that leads into the Second World War, and then shortly after that, there's trouble in Israel. There's trouble in a lot of places because of this post-colonial or anti-colonial push and independence movements. I suppose this is where the idea of one man's terrorist as another man's freedom fighter comes from, because so many of these post-colonial, anti-colonial organizations who resorted to terrorist acts ended up in key positions uh, once those colonial powers had left. Uh, yeah, and of course, uh, you know, it was actually Palestine then, wasn't it? It was before the state of Israel. Completely. And, and there was this huge tension, obviously, post-Holocaust as well, the, the, this, this tension to create the state of Israel, the groups like Ergun and the Stern Gang who were attacking uh, British positions and the people normally protecting them in a way from Arabs, trying to keep the two sides apart. There were all these tensions going on. And so you got assassinations in 1944 of uh, key figures such as Lord Moyne. And it became extremely serious. The, the, the level of violence started to grow. The level of equipment flowing to these terrorist organisations or, in some eyes, resistance organisations started to expand. And their 
activities and their, the scope of their operations were becoming much broader. And then shortly after the war ended, in 1946, the same group, the Stern Gang, attacked the 6th Airborne Division, who were based in a, a car park in Tel Aviv. And they killed a number of soldiers uh, and stole their weapons and then scarpered, leaving mines to cover their escape. A bit like Bader Meinhof later on in the in the sixties and seventies, you you see the start of their operations begins rather tentatively, and then it becomes more confident. Then the the scope of their activities broadens. Yeah, and of course, shortly, well, in the same year, nineteen forty six, you have the King David Hotel bombing, which killed ninety one and injured a lot of other people. And I, I sort of feel a bit of connection to it because my uncle was the burn surgeon who dealt with a lot of those victims. And years later, in nineteen seventy three, he dealt with the victims of the Birmingham pub bombing. So you go really from the 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 Israeli terrorists or the the Jewish terrorists. Uh, at that stage, to to uh, IRA terrorists decades later, but the results are the same. The attack on people, the 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 number of victims is is always huge, and and the political consequences can be vast as well. And actually, leaving people injured is another way to remind people of the fear of what could happen if they don't do whatever the terrorists want them to do. Completely. The, the, the terrorising is, is what they do, and the political impact is what they seek to achieve. You move on to, to the following year, to 1947, and you get, I suppose, the world's first truck bomb attack uh, in Haifa on a police station. It only killed four, but you can see this progression. You can see the tactics changing, the tactics evolving, you wind on to 1983, October, and you get a car bomb, a truck bomb, in Beirut that killed 241 US Marines. So the capabilities, the capacity and the destructive power of terrorist acts and of truck bombs hugely expands over that period. And the use of trucks has not diminished. You look at 2016, the the attacks, for example, on the Promenade des Anglais in Nice, that killed, I think, 94 people, uh, and that was just a driver mowing down. So you don't people. even need explosives. One minute you're just a truck, truck driver going along and the next minute you're just running people over. Completely. And you can yeah. see why modern technology and modern living creates these opportunities for terrorists. In the same yeah. year, in 2016, you had a truck driving into Christmas shoppers at the Christmas market in Berlin uh, near the uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II Memorial Church. Uh, the, I think that killed a dozen people. But the impact can be enormous. So whether it's hitting Marines or hitting civilians, the, the, the political impact is huge. And, this and is also the effect on social life is, is still with us today. Now any bridge you, you walk over in London, instead of being an uh, attractive-looking bridge, is covered... Uh, the, the separation between the road and the pavement has these great big metal barriers now. Well, I remember the barriers going up around the Palace of Westminster. You go along the Promenade des Anglais in, in, in Nice today, and they've actually done it quite well, but it's got sort of palm trees in strategic locations. It has uh, metal uh, sort of plaited wires, cables uh, between bollards, and those cables can actually stop a truck. 
but but people have definitely had to think things through. Uh, you know, the traffic calming measures, half of those are really counter-terrorist measures in disguise. But it, it has definitely impacted modern life. So in the early 50s, there were problems in Malaya. There were problems in all manner of places. And Britain was on the back foot because of the Second World War. We didn't have the money to fight these insurgencies or, or to go in heavy-handed. It's one of the reasons that the SAS was, was reconstituted and born again, because we needed a means of fighting an insurgency in a, in a specialist, directed manner. But terrorism, again, was used by these insurgents and by those who wanted to push the Brits out and impose their sort of Marxist-Leninist, communist-backed um, regime in Malaya and take over the tin trade. Well, um, and sometimes they were pushing at an open door, weren't they? I mean, the political will back home was uh, decolonisation. Completely. And But there was still this need to, 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 to somehow... Have, a, have an orderly An orderly withdrawal yeah. and, and stop revolutionary Marxist groups from taking over. But assassination, once more, was the tool of terrorist groups. And the governor, Sir Henry Gurney, was killed in his car in 1951. Uh, the road was blocked and then he was gunned down with his chauffeur. And that follows a, a long pattern of vehicles being sort of targeted by terrorists over the years. It has gone on for for decades, ever since automobiles arrived on the scene. Uh, yeah, starting with uh, Franz Ferdinand's assassination in uh, 1914, which uh, brought in uh, the start of the First World War. I exactly, and we mentioned this in our uh, assassin podcast. The, 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 so many of these things happen when the target is away from protected environments, away from a palace or away from uh, their fortresses. So whether it's Alexander II in the 19th century or Franz Ferdinand uh, travelling in 1914 in Sarajevo, they are targets. Later on in 1942, when Reinhard Heydrich was attacked in Prague by SOE-trained agents, he was vulnerable because he was travelling in an open car. Yeah, and that brings in and that uh, idea of, you know, one man's terrorist, another man's freedom fighter on that. You know, we were all for him being killed. Completely. I mean, we were, we were at war. But so many innocents are killed by terrorist organisations. They don't care about collateral damage whatsoever. Go forward to the 1970s and 1976 when Christopher Hewitt Biggs, the... Uh, British ambassador to Dublin was killed after two weeks, assassinated after two weeks in Dublin. A man completely committed to peace who had lost his eye on Normandy beaches. I mean, a very brave man, decent man, profoundly decent man. And he was murdered by the IRA uh, the year before in 1975 in, in London. Um, a cancer surgeon, Geoffrey Hamilton Fairley, was killed because his dog sniffed under the car of the next-door neighbour, Sir Hugh Fraser. And there was an IRA car bomb there, and it set off the, 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 the bomb, and he was killed. So people are always caught in the crossfire, but vehicles are a key component of the terrorist weapon, uh, and that is 
something that has travelled through history. Well known to uh, many people is the Mama insurgency in Kenya in the 1950s. That, once more, a bit like Malaya, was uh, something that involved both insurgency uh, and terrorism and required a sort of overall response. And this is one of the things that has been learnt over the years. You, you can't just use one way of dealing with a terrorist threat or an insurgency threat. Uh, you saw it in Malaya. It wasn't just the SAS going in, or it wasn't just internment camps. There were so many ways of having to deal and, and isolate the insurgents. And exactly the same happened in Kenya. You, you got the Mau Mau um, post-colonial, anti-colonial push by these insurgents and terrorists. And they were very brutal. I mean, almost 2,000 Kenyans, probably more, were killed by the Mau Mau, only 132 Europeans, but they went around uh, a bit like the Malayan insurgents, killing settlers, terrorising them, poisoning cattle with latex, massacring villages, uh, killing chiefs who were pro-British. It, it, it was a very concerted campaign, uh, just like the uh, Viet Cong in Vietnam. You know, terrorising their own people was really part of, part of their play. And was this because they didn't expect to get independence or was it that they knew the independence was coming and they wanted to, you know, mark the territory? I think they wanted to mark the territory. They wanted to grind down, wear down the will of the colonial power and make sure that they left prematurely. And they wanted to seize political control. So enforcing their will and killing off those who might be pro-British or might be against them was, was part of their plan. But terrorism, again, was, was part of their arsenal. Extremism and technology have sort of gone hand in hand as new things are invented. The terrorists can then come up with new ways of killing people and instilling fear. And we mentioned at the beginning uh, international travel and uh, also the development of explosives. We've also got 3D printers and cryptocurrency and a sort of crossover between criminality and the terrorists. Quite often criminals will take up a terrorist cause because it gives them a sort of greater purpose. And as an example, we've got the Spokane bombing in January 2011. Yeah, that was stuck in a backpack and it was directional and it was covered in human feces and rat poison. So it was designed that those who were hit not only would get gangrene, but would also not be able to stop the bleeding because there was an anticoagulant added to the shrapnel. So it's always to do with the terrorist mindset and, and the authorities trying to outpace what they're up against, but the technology has not only allowed extremist organisations to operate, it's allowed the lone wolf to operate as well. And we'll, we'll come on to that later, but you know, a couple of years after that Spokane incident, and that didn't detonate, you, you did get a bomb that detonated because you got the Boston bombings by those two uh, Islamic extremists. So there's always that problem, and there's always that technological development. Ever since 
1585, I think it was, and uh, the the hoop, that, that ship that attacked that Spanish bridge near Antwerp and killed so many thousands of people. So the authorities are always trying to catch up, always trying to prevent. And the Spokane bombing was by Kevin Harpham, who was sentenced to over 30 years in prison, and it was discovered by the FBI. But the Boston Marathon bombing, it detonated. Three people were killed, but 264 people were injured. And it shows how small groups or individuals can have such an impact and terrorise. And it's something that, that I've written about for 30 years, is, is this idea that there's a move towards the spectacular, there's a move to trying to grab publicity, and in order to do that, terrorists have to terrorise more. The, the limits on their activity are reduced as they try and create greater spectaculars and more atrocity. And the technology has helped. And the internet has not only helped to radicalise, and you see that in terms of the extremists today. There are so many surveys that show that over 80% of extremists are radicalised by the internet, whereas you know, back in the sort of early 2000s, it, it was much lower. So people can get radicalised more easily, they can have their views reinforced more easily, and through things such as 3D printing, the chances of actually creating a weapon, creating a device, or being instructed on creating uh, explosives or weapons uh, becomes easier. So this year alone, you get the assassination of the former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. So uh, these are one of these are the sort of litany of problems that the authorities have to face. Yeah, and it sounds like he was murdered um, by a man using a homemade gun. But that is the thing, and, yeah. it, and it's become easier to create homemade explosive and homemade weapons, and technology has allowed that. And whether it's cryptocurrency or international travel, the ability to move money around, to get away, to uh, plan operations becomes easier all the time. And global positioning helps as well. So uh, these, and these, these and, are the problems. And, and these, um, you know, in, individuals is one thing, but when with these mercenary groups, they can really make use of this technology. I mean, in the last century, we had the PLO and Black September, and and it all sort of, it, it sort of went on from there, didn't it? Abu Nidal and Carlos the Jackal. Yes, you, you, you started getting these, these radical groups. And a lot of these mercenary groups use terrorist tactics. You look at the Wagner group and their activities both in Africa and now in Ukraine. They're, they're quite willing to terrorise local populations to use extremely brutal methods. And they, again, have access to the technology of the battlefield. So that is going to help their terrorist activities. You then go on to other groups that came through after the fragmentation of Afghanistan, you know, the Al-Qaeda and now ISIS. And it's almost as though there's a competition to, to become more brutal, to set fire to people, to throw people off buildings, uh, to mount terrorist attacks. And it fed through to, to 9-11 eventually. And this idea that terrorists were always going to use the bomb 
bullet and booby trap is something that that I always argued against. You know that 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 these people were going to have the imagination to go further, and you can see it in the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine acquiring microlites. Uh, there was this move towards finding other ways of committing atrocity and attacking their targets. Now you have the technology of commercially available drones. And if Ukrainian soldiers can add grenades and explosives to drones, terrorists can too. And you've already got this concern of weapons that are flooding into Ukraine are going to come back onto the black market and be available internationally, just as weapons that flooded into Afghanistan ended up in the hands of uh, al-Qaeda and being used against the West. This is an article on terrorism posted by James Jackson in 2015. He is plainly some crazed moral retard. That stuck it to him, or not. Yet on the night of 9-11, as I sat in a BBC radio studio, helping to dissect the bleak events of that day, it was the only response I could summon to the Al-Qaeda representative the corporation had thoughtfully allowed on air. Make no mistake, I loathe such extremists, and such extremists had been around and preparing for a very long time. On that same radio show, I was asked about the long-term ramifications of the attacks on the Twin Towers and Pentagon. War, I replied. War in Iraq and Afghanistan. I hate to say I told you so, but I told you so, and I told you often. It was obvious to any who cared to look or think that the threat posed by mass terrorism was on the rise that Osama bin Laden had a penchant for the spectacular, that the window-dressing response of Clinton in throwing a cruise missile at an empty adobe hut somewhere in Afghanistan was risible as it was pointless. For over a decade before 9-11, I had warned in lectures and in print of the encroaching menace of more nihilistic terror outfits inspired by a concept of the purity of violence and committed to destruction as the end game in itself. Their lethal potency and scale of ambition were on the rise, and our vulnerability invited attack. A propaganda coup was called for. So the evolution from using traditional bomb, bullet and booby trap toward employing something far more sinister began. The rest, as they say, is grim history and an awful lot of video footage. In May 1990, in Jane's Defence Weekly, I wrote, Commentators argue terrorists will follow established and predictable norms in tactics, target selection and choice of weaponry. This may be a mistake, in that it encourages a preconception of future threat developments and limits flexibility in developing an adequate security response. Terrorist groups will search for new targets and customised forms of atrocity, Two years later, I added, Few of us should imagine that modern terrorist groups would refrain from doing as much damage as possible with whatever means are available. For good measure, in 1997, I published the thriller Dead Headers to illustrate the kinds of scenario I believed would soon be upon us and to argue the case for preemptive strikes to deadhead the terror organisations before they could act. Well, we didn't. 
They did. People died. It's not that I or others who voice similar concerns were specially prescient or blessed with the gift of foresight. Simply, the Western governments and their intelligence agencies were shamefully myopic and slow to react. They should have seen it coming. They should have had the balls to introduce protective measures at home and clamp down on Islamic radicalization and extremism. They should have had the brains to go after the terrorist leaderships abroad before ever resorting to the expense in both lives and resource of a full-on military land campaign. On almost every count, they failed. I've never been overly squeamish at the notion of extrajudicial execution for terrorists. These players make their bed and their choice. They have become outlaws and combatants as soon as they cross to the dark side. They are therefore fair game. Negotiation and political engagement were never their agenda. Targeted killing of them should be ours. It is a proportionate act taken in self-defence. It is discriminate and designed to prevent greater loss of life down the line. It is just. On its own, this hard-hitting and kinetic approach provides no cure-all solution. But as part of a layered defence, it has its place. Of course, there should be process, diligence and careful planning, and the minimising of civilian deaths. And naturally, there are flaws. Few should forget how Israel, with its Wrath of God operations against the Black September movement, was blind to the larger picture and the preparations by Arab states for the 1973 launch of the Yom Kippur campaign. Fewer still should be unaware of the possibility of backlash and increased Pakistani militancy caused by CIA Reaper drone attacks on Taliban and Al-Qaeda targets in Waziristan and tribal areas. Forgive my tough stance and reluctance to swallow whole the line, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Maybe I was conditioned by having an uncle, who as a burn surgeon operated on victims of the King David Hotel bombing in Jerusalem in 1946 and the Birmingham pub bombings almost 30 years later. Or perhaps it was knowing as a teenager, three friends of mine who lost their fathers to the murderous instincts of the provisional IRA. Total casualties from acts of terrorism remain relatively low. That is not for want of trying on the part of the extremists. And with the skill sets of the terrorists growing, and the bottleneck in the availability of nuclear fissile material likely to ease, we're in for a challenge. Intelligence gathering often demands still waters in which to fish. Occasionally, we need to dynamite the pond. There is a scene in Deadheaders in which I wrote of a terror attack on New York. In its aftermath, the silence spread across Manhattan and west throughout the land. It would not last. The emergency had only just begun. Jamie, let's now talk about the spectaculars. The spectaculars were, ha, have been the culmination or the, or the sort of apex of this extremism plus technology. It's really the, the, the consequence. And it grew out of that sort of competition in the late 1960s and early 1970s between terrorist organisations and terrorist chiefs to 
achieve the, the greatest publicity of all. It's when you got Bader-Meinhof, the Red Army faction at its height. It's when you got groups like the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine and Black September at their height. And they both helped each other. There, there was not just the Palestinian question, but there was also this revolutionary dimension and the technology. So in 1968, you got Bader-Meinhof mounting a bomb attack on a Frankfurt department store, but no one was injured. It was at night. But that was just a taster. And so from then on, the escalation started. You began to get attacks on US Army headquarters. You started getting kidnappings. By 1974, you got the murder of Gunther von Drenkmann, the president of the Supreme Court in West Germany. So you started getting individuals being hit. You started getting spectaculars, such as the Dawson's Field uh, hijack by the Palestinians. And that saw the blowing up in 1970 of three hijacked airliners on the airfield in Jordan. That's the first terrorist act I remember as a child. I remember seeing these planes being blown up. So if I could remember it, it certainly made an impact on everyone else at the time. This is what was happening. There were so many hijacks going on, so many assassinations going on. And Bader-Meinhof started expanding. There was an invasion of the West German embassy in Stockholm. Uh, hostages were killed there. One of the terrorists apparently set off the explosives by mistake, so two of the terrorists were, were killed. It, it was a very violent period. So you have the German side, you have the Palestinian side, and you have the 1972 Munich Olympic massacre, Israeli athletes killed... All these events were competing for airtime, competing for publicity. And then you started getting the mercenary groups coming through, those who really had no respect for law and order, certainly no respect for the political niceties or political ends of what they wanted to achieve. They just wanted violence. So you had Carlos the Jackal, uh, Ilyak Ramirez Sanchez, the Venezuelan revolutionary, he actually wasn't that successful, but he managed to get publicity, uh, whether it was grenade attacks uh, in Paris on, on uh, pharmacies or an attempt to use an RPG-7 grenade launcher against an airliner at uh, Paris airport. He went out of his way to commit acts of violence in, in Europe. He even came over to London, uh, tried to murder... Uh, Joseph Seif in St John's Wood in the early 70s tried to blow up a bank in London. That failed. He was eventually captured by French special forces in Sudan in 1994. But, and he's still serving prison sentence. So his career was up and down, but he certainly became the sort of poster boy. Yes, Someone he had that, that picture, wasn't it? That photograph of him wearing those enormous sunglasses which somehow struck a chord didn't it and even though he wasn't successful he was probably the most well recognized terrorist it's a bit like the image of Che Guevara he said set himself up as a revolutionary terrorist apparently he was very smelly Che Guevara even though he was handsome I should think Ilic Ramirez Sanchez the jackal also was <laughs> but 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 nasty you didn't want to meet them in person nasty pieces of work yeah. and uh, 
so he sort of ran this mercenary organization, would pick up contracts. It was like a contract hitman. But far worse was Abu Nidal, who committed acts of terrorism. His organization committed acts of terror in over 20 countries. He's believed to have been responsible for the deaths of several hundred people. I mean, not a lot in the scheme of things, but the attacks themselves had huge headlines at the time. Even as late as 1985, he was planning and directing attacks, the, the famous attack in Vienna and Rome on the checking queues there with grenades. His, his men killed uh, over a dozen in Rome and four in Vienna and wounded a great number of people as well. So, and, and yet who remembers those? Well, this is the thing about the spectacular. They're spectacular at that time, which is why terrorist activities became more and more extreme, more and more pronounced, why you get this sort of gradual escalation to the point of 9-11, where you get a real spectacular, where no one is ever going to forget that. And this is one of the things about terrorist groups, that they're, they're vying for the oxygen, they're using the same oxygen of publicity, and they have to try and get noticed. And so, yet he himself, Abu Nidal, was such a psycho that he killed really more of his own men than other people. He did. He killed several hundred of them. And they, they say that he drank a bottle of whiskey and then ordered the murder of 600 of his own Abu Nidal organisation. Uh, I think about 190 were killed. And there was a mass grave and they were all shot and that was it. But he himself had a bad end because he was thrown out of Libya because he was helping... Gaddafi direct terrorist operations and it was getting a bit hot for Gaddafi uh, post Lockerbie so Nidal left and ended up in Baghdad he was killed in 2002 um, probably by Iraqi security forces um, who didn't want him hanging around they saw him probably as a threat to the regime there so these terrorist groups these terrorist leaders often don't have a good end because they, they start annoying their hosts. They start undermining the country in which they're based. Look at al-Qaeda uh, causing essentially the invasion of Afghanistan by Western forces. Uh, you know, in the end, there's pushback, there's blowback. And, of course, closer to home in the UK, we had the IRA at this time, starting with the post office tower. don't suppose anyone remembers that. Once more, this is the problem with terrorist acts. It's, it's terrible at the time. People get hurt, injured and killed. It's horrendous. It can push the political discourse forward and it can cause real problems. And if you look at the IRA, they were attacking so many different targets, whether it was Harrods or the Post Office Tower or the Tower of London or the, um, the, the, the military. The killing of Airy Neve and Lord Mountbatten. Exactly. This went on and, and, and culminating, I suppose, with the Brighton bombing of the Conservative Party conference. So, again, there's this escalation. It's the same sort of escalation you saw with Palestinian groups and with the West German terrorist groups. They all need that publicity. They all want to be noticed. So the atrocities get worse and they become more daring over time. Although one of their most well-remembered 
events was uh, shortly before I joined the regiment when they blew up the household cavalry and the images on the front of the newspaper of many dead horses in Knightsbridge was a, an extremely negative PR disaster for the IRA. I think all these things essentially were PR disasters for the IRA because they just looked like murderous bastards, which is what they were, whatever their political goals were. And this was always the problem with the Palestinian terrorists and Bader Meinhof. Uh, Bader Meinhof just looked like poor little rich kids uh, who were spoilt and yet were psychopathic as well. And most of the leadership killed themselves uh, when the 1977 Mogadishu um, hijacked went terribly wrong and the Palestinian uh, terrorists were killed on board. And so often the gains they make through these activities are tactical, they're not strategic. They don't win the day or the argument, which is what they're trying to do with their actions. The only problem, of course, is the legacy they leave in terms of the way we have to live our lives now, whether it's the lack of dustbins in Westminster and the City of London because the IRA would put bombs in them, or the massive hassle it is now travelling on an aeroplane since 9-11. Exactly. I mean, this, this is absolutely the legacy of these terrorist actions. And once you get a, a truly spectacular act, such as 9-11, then that becomes the aim point, that becomes the starting point for future terrorist organisations. And we, we talked in our Bloody Russia 2 podcast about the lack of security around Russian fissile nuclear material um, in the 1990s when it was all being brought back, warheads were being brought back to Russia, and how one warehouse had 10,000 flasks full of plutonium. Well, this is always the worry that, that terrorists will then go on to dirty bombs, will then go on to other aspects of attack. Right at the beginning we mentioned state-sponsored terrorism. And this is very much Lenin's thoughts on the matter. Mass terror was needed to prevent counter-revolution. And it developed from there because you can see during the time of the Soviet Union how the Soviets saw terrorism, promoting, backing, sponsoring terrorism as a key political and military tool. The head of the KGB, first chief director at Foreign Intelligence, was a guy called Alexander Sakharovsky. And he stated very bluntly that in a time of nuclear weapons, using terrorism was a key tool, was a key instrument of Russian foreign policy and diplomacy. And he was delighted. In 1969, there were 82 hijackings of planes, and he, he freely admitted that the Soviet Union had links and were sponsoring the Palestinian terrorists who were doing those hijackings, just as today you see the Soviet Union, or you see Russia rather than the Soviet Union, take that forward and develop it into a far wider policy, which we'll talk about. And, and, and the whole terror aspect is simply part of it. But it do you think part of a proxy war. Uh, state-sponsored terrorism, you know, do the chickens come home to roost? I mean, do not, do, don't the Russians have huge problems with uh, their own you know, terrorists on their own borders? Sometimes they come home to roost, sometimes they don't. You look at Iran, it sees the 
provision of weapons, for example, rockets to Hamas and Hezbollah as, as part of its policy in keeping Israel in check or pressurizing Israel. It sees sending its uh, lieutenants and its paramilitary groups and, and, and military groups to Syria as part of its proxy war against the West and, and the Israelis. So terrorism is simply part of that arsenal in the same way that Iran today is sending drones to Russia to help it with its campaign in Ukraine. This is what it does in the same way that boats were intercepted, Iranian boats were intercepted by the Royal Navy uh, trying to get uh, very sophisticated weapons uh, over to the Yemen, to the groups that Iran backs in the Yemen. Uh, you know, gun running and terrorism and supporting proxy wars is what they do. It's a cheap way of conducting foreign policy. At the very other end of the scale, you've got the lone wolf, the person who is really very difficult to deal with because he operates without anybody else. If you have environments where serial murderers can operate, then you're going to have an environment in which lone terrorists can operate. Radicalisation is easy. They believe their own uh, publicity. They They've got a sort of manifesto, isn't it? Yes, they're, they're stuck in their echo chamber. And you, know, you look at the three that stand out in America, for example. You start with the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, in the late 1970s. He went on until the 1990s before he was caught, uh, sending mail bombs, doing a great deal of harm, a lot of damage. And his manifesto, if you like, was 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 against progress, against technology. But well, he was so taking sort of Luddite. In, in, in a sense. But that was his agenda. And so the range of agendas, the range of psychological problems and issues that drive these people can be vast. So you had Unabomber, you then got the Smiley Bomber, the Midwest Pipe Bomber, who was trying to create a smiley face across the map of America. Uh, he was another one. By, and, by, by putting um, pipe bombs into mailboxes. Yes, Lou Heldon, and, and, and harmed a lot of people again, driven by something completely different to the Unabomber. And so whether it's white supremacy or anti-technology or religious dimensions, uh, the, the, the individual can do a great deal of harm. You end up, or at least create a great deal of fear. Create a great deal of fear and publicity, and you end up with Timothy McVeigh, a white supremacist, with his truck bomb in Oklahoma in 1995, killing yeah, that over, was horrendous, killing over 160 people. And if you have a, a culture and society where weapons are readily available, where everyone is going to have a bad day, where people are used to uh, mass shootings, mass killings, then the terrorist is going to have to go so much further in order to be noticed. This is one of the things that drives terrorists. If you want publicity, you're going to have to outdo everyone else in terms of, of, of the atrocities you commit. So the future, Jamie, is it as bleak as it sounds? I'd like to say not, because ultimately 
one's fairly philosophical and pragmatic about these things. And the number, as we said right at the beginning, of terrorist victims is quite low. But it, it is the fact that these terrorists want to create a spectacular, that they want to be noticed, that is the worry. And the way to look at it, I think, is to see how Western militaries view it and, and Western uh, political organisations view it, governments view it. And they would put terrorism really into to what, what would be called a multi-domain threat, that it's not just terrorism. We are facing um, state-sponsored proxy wars. We're facing electronic warfare, cyber warfare, um, food being used as a weapon. You look at what Russia's doing with Ukrainian grain, for example, so, um, the supplies of that around yeah. the world, yeah. choking those off. You, you know that um, in North Korea, 10% of their GDP is supposed to come from cybercrime. I have no doubt, and I should think Russian GDP will be relying on that more as well in the future. So you have cybercrime, you, you have ransomware, you have oil and gas obviously being used as a weapon. You see the Russians sponsoring extremist political groups in Europe. You see them interfering in elections. Uh, you know This is not new, but the technology is, is getting better. So I think we said in our hostage podcast that th th there's less need to go through the risk of taking hostages now when you can simply use ransomware. So there are aspects of terrorism that might well die out. But on the other hand, there are aspects of terrorism, including the arrival of drones, commercial drones, that will make the threat more challenging. I mean, this is why there are geofences put around airports to, to, to stop drones flying into those areas. The, the technology, the, the advent of microelectronics, the ease of communication, the, the ease of radicalization, these are all the sorts of challenges in this multi-domain world. And to, to dominate that, or, or governments around the world, will have to be far more fluid, flexible and fast in, in how they respond. And this, so this de decision dominance that you talk about, in a nutshell, what is it? Well, in the military sphere, it's about having the information there and responding rapidly. It's having artificial intelligence available that suggests a, a, a course of action for you. It's getting the logistics to the right place. It's, it's hitting the enemy hard. It's finding out where the enemy is vulnerable. It's tracking down their finances. So in a way, the, the, the counter-terrorist role has become, although the challenges are vast, that the technology available to those who are fighting terrorism has also become better in, in terms of the information, in terms of putting leads together, in terms of following up. Uh, contacts. So, you know, that has been, you know, tracking finance, for example. All those things have become, in a way, uh, more technological and more sophisticated. So it is this constant battle. It's, it's the action taken by the enemy and it's the countermeasures you come up with. Okay. Uh, so yeah. decision dominance is about coming up with the right decision more rapidly that will allow you to, to, to win the fight. Okay. You get the information, analyse it, understand the logistics and respond. Exactly. 
Fortunately, of course, with electronic warfare and both sides of it, is that one of the things it does is it um, governments respond and our liberties are curtailed. That is a key problem, uh, and and uh, again, you see this throughout society, throughout the world. If you have a a government such as the one in Beijing that believes in social credit and control and everything linked to cameras and everything linked to databases, that sort of attitude, that sort of authoritarian attitude can, can leak into aspects of life throughout the rest of the world. And if people are fearful, I mean, look what happened with the pandemic. I know, you know, at the beginning it was very worrying, nobody quite knew. But, I mean, our liberties were curtailed so rapidly without anybody being able to sort of kick back. And that was really because people were so so fearful. Uh, and, of course, it, with extremists or terrorist organisations, they will notice that and they will adapt and they will think, well... If, if society is fearful of this, how can we create an environment where they fear us even more? And this is what pushes the, the, the spectacular. This is what makes them think outside the box. And, and, and that takes us, I suppose, towards our postcode. What is our postscript? Well, I was going to talk about terrorist operations that had gone wrong, and, and, and or the lunatic fringe, and and some of the We've sort covered of quite a lot of things. That. We have <laughs> covered a lot of that, but I was going to mention the the underpants bomber and the shoe bomber and things like that. But I thought I'd steer us towards a reading uh, from a thriller I wrote called The Reaper. And the reason I wanted to do that was to show that the imagination of the terrorists can often be greater than that of the thriller writer. In this scene, I have the Pope being blown up in Rome uh, using liquid explosives. And I was sitting there signing copies of this book. It was under a banner headline, Apocalypse has been brought forward because it was about a terrorist leader who wants to bring forward the Day of Judgment through his terrorist acts. And I was signing copies of this book and no one was approaching because the day happened to be the 11th of September, 2001. So it just shows that while I was talking about uh, the blowing up of the Pope, real-life terrorists were bringing down the World Trade Centre. So this was really why I thought it was important to, to, to bring up this extract, is to show that terrorists or often ahead of the curve and ahead of the thinking of the authorities and everyone else. And even ahead of you, Jamie. And that's rare, Tom. This is an extract from James Jackson's thriller, The Reaper, published in September 2001. Boom! Houston, we have left off. The Reaper blew imaginary smoke from his cocked fingers. In St. Peter's Square, the pause before the panic. A shocked tranquility. A hovering, heavy silence that drifted and settled temporarily with the smoke. Then a groan, collective and collective trauma that welled, deepened, gathered volume and anguish and rose into consciousness and screams. Stampede. Among it, people fell to their knees to pray, were pushed, crushed, 
clung to columns and statuary against the tide, were overcome by emotion trampled by feet. Flowers, faith and festivity extinguished, beaten down by terror and tens and thousands of struggling, directionless bodies. Celebration to decimation in a few seconds. The assassin moved steadily and unseen towards an exit. I am Alpha and I am Omega, said the Reaper. Beginning and the end. The synagogues of Satan would be crushed, the whore, the church that rode on the scarlet beast of Rome, destroyed. Resurrection. The Reaper switched off the screen. It is done. So, folks, it looks like the terrorist is here to stay. And while governments, organisations and individuals continue the fight, we must not give in to fear. Frank Herbert had it right when he wrote that fear is the mind killer, as did FDR when he said that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Thank you, James. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. Thanks for listening. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. Please subscribe to BVH and it really helps others to hear about us if you leave us lots of stars and a review. You can also find us on our website at bloodyviolenthistory.com. For suggestions and comments, you can email me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you and good luck.